0: back you're listening to in situ science each episode we meet a different scientist and find out about what they do and why they do it i'm your host james o'hanlon and this episode it's my pleasure to be joined by a phd student an uh, entomologist and card shark helani walker helani <laughs> thanks for joining me
1: thanks for having me on
0: no worries so what's your game poker blackjack
1: five um, 500 actually do you play that in australia
0: I have no idea. Don't, no, I'm not don't, one person. Else.
1: Okay, fair enough. Do yeah, you play it in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. Uh, it's it's like bridge. Basically, it's it's kiwis are obsessed about this game, but it's it's basically bridge. Okay. Nice. Except people who play bridge will say that bridge is infinitely superior. <laughs> but but yeah, five no, five hundred is my game. Um, my brother and cousins and I spent hours that we should have been outside having childhoods. Yeah. Inside counting cards
0: did this contribute to your coming up with the idea of having a insect themed
1: um, cards? I think I think it did. I when I when I first thought of doing the insect cards the idea actually popped into my head fully formed while in the shower because that's where you have all your good ideas yeah. and a few bad ones. But um <laughs> But there, but when I thought about it, I, I was reminded of this pack of cards that my cousins and I... Because we played cards so often, we went through quite a few. But it was a pack of Marvel playing cards, mm-hmm. which each had different characters. Because this was a time before everyone knew every Marvel character. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, but yeah, so so I, I, I had very firm memories of not knowing who any of these characters were, but by the end of the summer, knowing their names, knowing visually what they looked like. And so basically, it's just meant that when I had the idea... About having playing cards with native New Zealand insects on them. It just, I I just felt confident that it was a way to, um, I guess, promote species visually.
0: So, we should clarify for people listening you're working with a scientific illustrator Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to release a set of cards, regular playing cards. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. Yep. Every
0: every single card will have a different New Zealand insect on it. Yes, a
1: total of 52. and these are on the faces, not on the back. Some people everyone seems to think they're gonna be well, okay. on the back of the cards, which doesn't quite make sense. Yep. But yet, so we'll have the species on the face cards with species names, um, and the jokers are going to be the New Zealand Entomological Society logo because <laughs> because they bankrolled us and we are very, very grateful for that.
0: How do they feel about being jokers though? <laughs>
1: um, I think they I think they I think they'd quite like it okay. actually. I think they'll be okay with it. Um, yeah,
0: and so they'll have information about the insects on the cards. So or is it just visual. There
1: will be there will be information on the pack about how to get to a website, and on no. the website we'll be hosting the illustrations themselves and um, a short description about each of the insects. Mm-hmm. We also there's also this cool app called Orasma, which I think a few conferences use every now and again. But basically, it's an app, and we want to set this up where you open up the app and you it kind of sets up a camera type thing on your phone. And if you put the card image, um, in front of the camera, it will recognize it and mm-hmm. it can bring up information or photographs or web pages. So we think that'd be a really cool thing to do. Yeah. As well with that.
0: Just I to narrow the like distance. It's like the augmented reality. Yep. Is that what it yes. is? Yes.
1: Yep. That's what it is. All and right. it's just about narrowing the distance between the cards themselves and the information
0: about yep. the insects. All right. So who's doing all the illustrations? Um,
1: so they're all being illustrated by Emma Sheltimer, who I was an undergrad with at mm-hmm. University of Auckland. Um, she was doing some... She's studying as a scientific illustrator now, and she was doing some work for our lab, kind of official publication, oh, level right. illustration work for us. And um, at the time, I was working on a proposal for a, a picture book about insects, kind of for the public to improve awareness, or just to make people think that they're not horrible and gross and things like that. <laughs> um, and Emma was around, and I thought, this is a great opportunity for us to work together. Yeah. And um, the picture book didn't actually end up going anywhere, just bureaucracy and things happened, but mm. but then came up with the idea with the cards and just sort of sidestepped the whole thing.
0: Yeah, but the cards aren't available just yet?
1: No, um, we're looking at uh, November 21st. Mm-hmm. As uh, p- opening pre-orders, uh, they're being made as we speak and should be in the country by... And by country, I mean New Zealand, early <laughs> December, <laughs> just
0: to clarify. We'll, we'll try to get the podcast out around then and yeah. hopefully you can yeah, yeah, yeah. find out about it. So if people are interested in pre-ordering them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an, a website which is nz, uh, dot nz mm-hmm. and we'll have information about the online store and various updates and things, just oh. like that website. That's the hub, anyway.
0: So who got to decide what insects go on? I did. I did. I got to decide all <laughs> of them. Um,
1: it was it was tricky, because, I mean, New Zealand has more than 20,000 insects at yeah. 90%, a rate of 90% endemism, so it was tricky. We tried to do... Well, A, we tried to vaguely represent a large number of families and orders, so I think we have 12 orders and 48 different families, I think, mm-hmm. which is fairly good. Um, and then we tried to combine both things that people were familiar with, like wetter, puriri moths, things like that. And then a few ones that we thought were interesting behaviorally. Um, we have a couple endangered species on there. We have one species recently declared extinct. Uh-huh. So I guess we were just trying to represent not only the diversity, but the various facets around entomology mm-hmm. in New Zealand and just kind of use those species as kind of springboards to discuss on the website in short form
0: yeah mm. and there's no like specialty within the suites like there's uh, there's not like all <laughs> the cods are I think, think
1: there is only only very slightly we, th- okay. <laughs> we tried we tried but, um, but we we couldn't really come up with something to do with the suits but um uh New Zealand cave wetter are also known as king crickets mm-hmm. so they're kings um <laughs> And then at the other end, we had a few species which were either the rare ones or the endangered ones, and we made them aces, because aces are kind of equivalent to one, so they're a little bit... (laughs) That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, The rest, to be honest, it was entirely aesthetic. We just laid them out on a table and just um, tried to spread things out, because there are a lot of green and brown insects. (laughs) It's a bit boring if they're all right next to each other, so yeah, that was the rationale.
0: I mean, it was probably a learning experience for you to have to have to survey all the
1: the various insects and and things. Um, One of the best things about a, which is why being in my position as a doctoral student and being familiar with people within the entomology world is that I can just send emails to people and say, you're an expert on Lepidoptera or insects or bugs or whatever. Um, What would you recommend? Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, there's actually been a fair amount of expert Input into it, and we've gotten to highlight some species which I'd certainly not heard of.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but at the same time, it has been, yeah, it's been a real learning curve and quite edifying, I think, having to take a step back from just behaviour, morphology, evolution, which is kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. And ha- having to look at not just entomology as a pursuit, but as, but looking at our insect fauna in a broader context.
0: Because you put out a bit of an informal survey. Yeah. I it a while ago. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, it was, it was great. I, um, so what it was, was that I had to give a talk about the playing cards to the department. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just that I'm uncomfortable speaking when I don't have a graph behind me or something like that. I, just, <laughs> I need some numbers. I need some numbers before I talk to the department. So I set up a survey on Facebook and it got shared on Twitter a few times. And it was just three questions. The first one was, um, can you list 10 New Zealand birds and I didn't say native or endemic or anything like that because I wanted a range of people to answer then I said can you name 10 New Zealand insects Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just asked them there was a multiple choice question about you know, I studied biology in high school or I have no background in it or I'm a trained entomologist and got about 137 responses which was pretty good for an informal Facebook survey Mm -hmm. but um, what we found was that Across all backgrounds, um, on average, everyone could name 10 New Zealand birds. And they generally were endemic birds, endemic or native anyway. Um, by comparison, the same people, unless if they were trained entomologists, they could name maybe five insects. And most of the time, these were not specifically native insects. So I accepted the Queensland fruit fly (laughs) because it was found, (laughs) it was found in New Zealand last year. So I say, well, it was in New Zealand at some point. Yeah. So I'll, I'll accept that. Um, but yeah, whereas everyone could name 10 native birds, um, 5 insects, and I mean, I was, as I said, I was very broad about it. They said ant. I was okay, <laughs> sure, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so basically, it, it, it demonstrated a little bit more formally what I knew, which is that people know a lot about birds and not a whole lot about insects, mm.
0: particularly in New Zealand. What do you think that is? is? I mean, I don't think it's a New Zealand thing. It's yeah. It's probably a normal thing.
1: I think... Why is it? They're, they're small. They're cryptic. Um, they... Yeah, people people don't tend to notice them until they get into your face. You, kind of, you can hear birds. You can mm. see them and things like that. Particularly in New Zealand, we're very pr- proud of our terrestrial bird fauna. So there's a bird on the back of all of our paper money. Mm. There's only one insect. Um, and I did not know it was there until I looked it up <laughs> um yes, in the case of New Zealand, I guess that you know it's charismatic megafauna yeah. we we like um we like pretty cute things, and we see them, I guess maybe because they're birds, they're vertebrates and things. I think we see ourselves more rapidly in other vertebrates, mm. we recognize their behaviours and we kind of see them as having personalities, whereas. Partly because there isn't as much kind of promotion of insects and things. I don't think you as rapidly see that they are Mm. animals in the same way that we ourselves are.
0: But you must be dealing with this a little bit more now you've moved into the world of spiders.
1: (laughs) Spiders are actually really... um, It's been interesting. I think my my small talk at parties game has actually gotten better. (laughs) Because people... The thing is that I was studying praying mantises before. Um, I thought the praying mantises, we've only got two praying mantis species in New Zealand, only one of them's native.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I thought that praying mantises were fairly distinctive, but I had people saying, oh, you were working on cockroaches, mm-hmm. crickets. People just kind of weren't that sure what they were. But spiders, everyone knows what a spider is, and everyone has very strong opinions <laughs> about spiders. I get, um, I get kind of spider confession most times. Things like, <laughs> oh, my God, there was a spider in my room today, and I killed it, and then I thought of you.
0: <laughs> and I forgive you. Yeah. But you, I mean, can you tackle this in you know, small talk?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, I, to be me, honest, I think I terrify people at first, because they say, <laughs> oh, but in New Zealand, we don't have any poisonous spiders. And then you have to be well, actually venomous, but also <laughs> I try not to be that person all the time. But sometimes, just, just to clarify for a, listeners,
0: poisonous versus So, venomous. so,
1: so poisonous generally means that if you ingest something, um, it is bad for you. Mm-hmm. Venomous generally means that it is um, kind of manoeuvred into you via like a fang or a sting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, where was I going with that? Yeah. Uh let's talk about spiders with people. Um yeah. it kinda depends on who they are. Uh so I firstly terrify them by saying, Oh no, we do have venomous. We have plenty of all spiders are venomous, by and large. And yeah. there are plenty of New Zealand that will bite you. Yeah. But the point is that you'll be fine. <laughs> you will you will almost a hundred percent be fine. Yeah. Um I mean such y- a
0: diverse, interesting group that have just been given this hmm.
1: Unfortunate yeah, persona. I don't
0: know why it's been sort of unfairly given to them.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I I, I don't really know where it's come from because in many ways, because you, you kind of look at legends and things like that around spiders from around the world, and they have some interesting personas in different cultures. Like, um, so in Māori lore, they, um, they taught I can't remember who it was I feel really bad they taught they, they, they basically taught this kind of ancestor how to build canoes out of trees and things and they're oh. kind of these these bringers of knowledge and they build these kind of silk web um, ladders up to the heavens and things mm-hmm. um, and in other cultures they you know they have this persona of the trickster and in some ways I think that that's given that there's such amazing behavioural subjects because of all things from web building mm-hmm. cannibalism signalling dancing all that kind of thing Um, that's actually a really good way to start changing people's minds about things. Mm -hmm. It's because it's it's in the behaviours that I think we see the humour and we see you know, we start seeing ourselves Mm -hmm. in those. And spiders are great for that. Um
0: And you're working specifically on spider behavior mm -hmm. of these big sheep web spiders. Big
1: softies. I'm guessing
0: that means they have big webs. They have big webs.
1: Yes, exactly. Um (laughs) So, uh, they, so these sheepwear spiders, genus Cambridgea, they have these, um, large horizontal thick main sheets. And the Auckland species, um, which is the one I study, they build webs up to a metre squared. Oh. Which is fairly big. Yeah. Um, and the spiders big. hang out underneath there and things fly in, um, above it. There are these knockdown threads above the main sheet. Um, So the
0: the sheet's, like, horizontal, and they're hanging under it?
1: Yep, yep, yep. It's like a big trampoline. (laughs) Um, And then insects fall into it. I think it's quite loose, which Mm -hmm. means that when insects fall into it, they kind of... um, It bites. Yep, and then it comes running over and basically just bites through and pulls it over, pulls it through. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the spiders themselves... Quite big too, are
1: they? are big for New Zealand standards, which is sort of
0: um, size so of your hand big or size of your face big. Oh, n-
1: neither of okay. those. <laughs> Not even that big. Right. No, they're, they're sort of um, uh, body size, maybe a couple of centimetres. Leg size, leg length, maybe up to 10 centimetres, something like that. Right. Which is big by New Zealand standards.
0: Yeah, used to Australian spiders. Yeah, no, yeah. nothing like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that, no. no. And these guys are big softies as well. They're scared of everything.
0: It's very cute. <laughs> and these are not harmful to people.
1: Um, there are some records. I saw a great, um, I was doing some work in museums, looking through the specimens and things, and the best collection record I saw was one of these guys had been found in the hairdresser's. <laughs> and it said the collection method was it bit the hairdresser.
0: That was on the collection label. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> To be
1: honest, if I think if I were you know accessing something in a museum, and putting leaving it there, I would definitely write that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think based on what I've read, you get a kind of welt for about an hour. Yeah, then right. It goes down and it's fine. But it's so, not. Yeah.
0: No. It's not a problem. Could is there any chance you could hunt down the hairdresser?
1: I can't remember I can't remember what date that was from actually
0: so I'm not sure I think that would be great if you ever had to describe a new species you could name it after the hairdresser no that's true (laughs) that'd
1: be great I know know another I have a friend who says that he got bitten by one but it's because he was beating a fern or something and it fell into his stubbies so (laughs) I think that's mostly his fault
0: (laughs) you gotta try pretty hard to get bitten by oh yeah absolutely and
1: I think that if if, I, I feel more bad for the spider being stuck in his shorts, so.
0: <laughs> and so what are you researching?
1: Um, so the... I guess the main thing we're looking at, the central question that it all hangs on is that the males in the species have exaggerated chelicerae or jaws. And basically all the sections of the doctorate around it are just looking at the, the who's, the what's, the why's, the how's. So is that the fangs... Um, not their fangs as such, more the kind of the, you know, the fangs Mm -hmm. get kind of sheathed within these jaws, um, and it's the jaws themselves.
0: Just little extra mud parts Mm -hmm. near the fangs.
1: Yeah, the fangs are, it's like a switchblade. Alright. Yeah, yeah, so it's like the uh, base of the switchblade. Yeah. Yeah. So the fangs do get bigger and larger individuals, and they are larger in males, but the actual base of it also gets larger. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is relevant is because when males fight, they lock them together, Okay. push at each other. So in that way um, the kind of base of the fang, which is the chilis ray, is actually quite an important functional.
0: So they're just whacking each other with these face clubs.
1: <laughs> uh, not really whacking each other. They, it's, it's like a rugby scrum. They, <laughs> they, they really do lock. They lock and then they push at each other in these ritualized fights on female webs because they're all fighting for access to females, which yeah. is just assumed. Um, but yeah, so they usually, these fights usually don't end in um, death, but every now and again a fang kind of gets hooked round the chilosray ray and mm-hmm. gets stuck into the cephalothorax and
0: yeah. that tends to result in death. So is the idea that the bigger your face clubs, the better a male you are?
1: Well, I mean, that, that was the idea. So what we were looking at was, so given that we saw this and given that we knew that they fought, although we hadn't really seen them doing it, um, it seemed reasonable to expect that males fighting each other would be a good chance to make use of having larger mm-hmm. jaws. And these spiders kind of, they, they follow a pattern called positive volometry, which is that small males have jaws of a certain size, large males have kind of absurdly large jaws. Yeah, and they're
0: so they're not like they're in proportion. Yeah, nip.
1: so they become disproportionately large in larger yeah. males. Which, which kind of makes sense when you think, you kind of think, okay, so maybe large males, because they have disproportionately large jaws, it makes them better fighters. Mm-hmm. So we ran all these, um, fighting trials where basically just in my spare room we had all these females set up with webs and we'd put males onto them and just see how they fought and
0: who won and, and like your spare room in your house and... yes okay so yes. life of a scientist yes yes In spider uh, the worst
1: the worst <laughs> bit as well was that I had to have a red light on in the window because <laughs> um, because the spiders the spiders can't see red light but I can so yeah
0: Everything so they is, think they're in darkness. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And you just so just look they, like
0: you're in a shady establishment. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> My husband was thrilled. Um, yeah, and so we we ran all these trials and base and the the results. It's it's tricky because you have these large spiders. Larger spiders tend to win fights more often, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Um, but it also makes it very difficult to pair out the effect of having a larger weapon mm-hmm. as well, because being a larger male, you tend to have a larger set of jaws. So separating out that information has been tricky. And we have some possible explanations as to why larger males might have larger jaws. One of them being that um, this is more around kind of contest assessment sort of thing. So fights tend to last longer, and they tend to escalate further, Depending on, um, how much, how long the fights tend to go on for. And how long the fights tend to go on for depends on how long the loser wants to stay involved. Mm. Because fights are ultimately decided by when the loser gives up. Basically what else, what the the spiders that I study do, there are a couple different things. There's like, there are are ways of assessing your chances in a fight. Um, there's self-assessment, which is kind of, it's sort of like looking in in the mirror at a gym and kind of going, yeah.
0: I, I rate. You can personify I, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Analogy, I, <laughs> if you like.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a it's like it's like a boxer looking at himself in the gym and what well, kind of on the scales. I mean, like I rate my chances. Yeah. I'm pretty good at this kind of thing, um, and that's self-assessment. So given that um, in a fight you think I'm pretty good, I'll stay in a fight for however long it takes. Yeah. Um, by contrast, mutual assessment is when you take into account your opponent, so it's more like you visually sizing up. Or using whatever signals are available to you. Mm. So it's like sizing someone up in a bar fight. (laughs) Um, If they're a similar size to you, you think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight this out and stay as long as I can. If the guy is substantially larger than you, you're probably gonna duck out pretty fast. Yeah. Um, So what my spiders do is that they use self-assessment, which means that smaller individuals don't rate their chances that highly and they'll stay in for a small amount of time. Yep. Larger individuals, they seem to know it. I don't know how they know it. I was just going to ask, how do they know it? I don't know <laughs> that. Um It's probably got something to do with uh, feeding success as juveniles, I think, because mm. adult size is ultimately decided by feeding success yep. as juveniles. But I'm not sure specifically. <laughs> Either way, large, ma- large individuals tend to stay in heights for longest. Small mm. ones tend to, you know... Leave pretty fast, regardless of how big their opponent is.
0: All right, it's yeah. pretty incredible that these little critters have some sort of a concept of self. When you think about
1: it, <laughs> I think that's. I think maybe saying concept of self is possibly giving them too much credit. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I mean, whether, whether it's a case that they have a threshold of kind of, I will, I will, um, you know, I will perform this much energetic work yeah. up to this point. And then I get tired and I leave. Yeah. Or whether it's actually processing kind of risks of what's my probability of winning this fight versus the risks of damage to myself. Yeah. Um, it's kind of tricky to figure out which that is. Yeah. And you have to take into account what the animal can actually process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but where, to, where I was going with that is that given that my species tend to base how long they stay in a fight for based on how big they are, so only the big ones tend to stay in the fight, um It means that the big ones are the only ones who really get as far as locking their jaws together. Prior to that point, they just kind of push at each other with their legs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So basically, means the longer they are, the, the bigger they are, the longer they stay in the fight, the longer they stay in the fight, the more likely they're going to have to lock jaws yeah. and actually, you know, fight each other on the on that platform.
0: Yeah,
1: which might be sufficient reason for only large males to develop really large jaws.
0: So. Uh, If large males are fighting each other for access Mm -hmm. to females, Mm -hmm. do you think there's a chance that there's an alternative strategy for the little males? Are they sneaking in?
1: I haven't I haven't seen it. I think it's very possible. Yep. Um for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's a closely related there's a species that's related. Um which there are a few species actually which show evidence of um discontinuity in male morphology. So you get males, you get a little peak of small males, and a peak of large males. The small males tend to be morphologically more similar to females.
0: So you ended up in a position where you're spending the next three or four years thinking very focused on spiders and spider Mm behaviour. But I was I was stalking you online as I do. Yeah. With my podcast guests, I mm-hmm. uh, noticed that your original degree was in biology and English literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, does this mean that uh, there was some point where you had to decide you're going to go down the biology way?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, I was actually, to be honest, until the end of, until maybe the last term of high school, I was actually going to do medicine. Um, and then I had an English teacher in year 13. Which was our last year of school. Mm-hmm. Who just kind of blew my mind.
0: Um,
1: and then I saw that in Stage Two English Literature, just second year English Literature, there was a science and literature paper. And I basically based my entire degree choice on wanting to take that paper. Um, also, I think when it came to choosing between choosing between science and English, um, in some ways I think that in choosing science, I kind of got to do both. Mm-hmm. Um, English literature, I think, is was was less about, you know, science is a little bit more resource intensive. You need a lab. You need to go out and do things, and yeah, things yeah. like that. English literature, I think, is more about a way of thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: about interpreting stories, and I think that that's something that at least I do, and I think a lot most people actually do day to day anyway, interpreting mm-hmm. the news, movies, music, art, things like that, and I mean even when we write scientific papers, we're ultimately constructing narratives and stories. Mm. And so I think that in some ways I haven't stopped studying English using mm-hmm. that kind of critical way of thinking of applying frameworks and looking at the way that we communicate information.
0: Do you think that scientists are good at telling stories this way?
1: I think it varies <laughs> from person to person. Um, I think... I. Th- Well, you know, some people are better at communicating more directly with non-scientists, which is the kind of science communication thing. Then there's journalism, and then there's, you know, there's paper writing. Some people are very good at paper writing, Mm -hmm. um, and they do it very naturally. Um, But writing papers, that's a structure, and it's a medium. It's a very specific kind of written medium, Mm -hmm. which has, and that structure has an impact on the way that information is received, and so the we're way that,
0: about the sort of peer-reviewed journal structure, yep. intro methods, yep,
1: even things like sort of even things like um, the fact that you generally, it's kind of changing now, but, it, but it, the fact that you generally write in the passive voice mm-hmm. and that you refer to things as we, you don't say I,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the way that you are meant to, but don't always succeed in using, say, um, unloaded language. Mm-hmm. Things like that. So I think there was a paper a few years back which looked at how when we talked about sexual selection, um, we kind of without meaning to used language that was very um, say, emotive when describing the roles of males and females mm-hmm. and how just in that way you kind of influence the way that people perceive the outcomes and how they then think about systems mm-hmm. in a way that might not have been intended. Yeah. Um even things like the, the the overall structure of you know you know, you set out your aims, you kinda of introduce a concept, you set out your aims, do your methods, have your results, then you have your discussion. And it sets it out as a very kind of one directional process. Yep. But the reality is and like anyone who's done a scientific project knows it's kind of iterative and you make things up on the fly and you mm-hmm. fix things on the fly and you change your original assumptions and Projects change a lot from beginning to end, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: regardless, that's not how we portray them yeah. in written form.
0: But I mean, that happens in all forms of science, even when you talk about people's you know, careers. Yeah. And they say, well, I did my PhD, and then I did my postdoc, and then yeah. I got this job. And
1: I had no doubts at any point <laughs> going and along. And of
0: the decisions I made were on purpose. Yeah. And this was my plan all along. Yeah. Is that just just a limitation of storytelling?
1: Um. Limitation, I think all forms of media are going to have a limitation in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, when you read someone's profile on their blog or in a program or something like that, you always write things that way. I did this, then I did this, then I did this. Yeah. Meanwhile, I got these awards and I wrote these books and things. Um, but people will portray themselves in very different ways, like on this podcast, Um you know, if they keep a journal or things like that. I don't think it's a question of certain things having, you know, being certain media being better than others. I think it's more just a question of being aware of what those limitations are. Mm. And particularly for things like journals... And blogs, or basically anything which is going to have an impact on A, the way people think, B, the type of questions that get asked and the kind of answers that get funded or published or mm. things like that. I think it's just important to be conscious of what information is kind of getting lost or being deliberately obfuscated.
0: I mean, it's a problem because scientists don't... It's almost like they don't want to talk about when they had to change their experimental design halfway through. No, well, you because it makes it seem uh, less valid or less sophisticated. Of course, you yeah. want to
1: you want to put your best front forward. Hmm. Basically, uh, I mean, if I could include a chapter in my thesis of all the experiments that didn't work, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like I'd be done already. Um, and I mean, but I mean, that's that's one of the things that they talk about the problem about you know, not being able to preserve, present negative results
0: and, yeah. and how
1: that influences not only the types of science they get funded, but it creates pressures on scientists and how they present themselves, how they operate. Mm. And it has these quite ethical kind of follow-ons. But that's just not... That, that's both a question of the way that we present our research, but it's also about the kind of environment and the community mm. around that.
0: I mean, the idea of journals, like the PLOS mm-hmm. journals, I mean, they were sort of established yeah. with this idea that it doesn't matter if your results are significant or not, as yeah. long as the science is sound. Yeah. And really, that should apply to any journal. It should. Well,
1: there's also like a lot of, not, not from me, but I've also heard a lot of snobbery around and
0: things like
1: that. <laughs> which which again it's 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 the community. Although the interesting thing I found is that for when I've done like every now and again if I do a radio thing or if you see things that the radio picks up around science, very often they're referencing stuff that's done in PLOS mm-hmm. because they have access to it. And yeah. certainly the mainstream media I think don't necessarily differentiate that strongly between journals in the same way that academics do.
0: It's probably just got a lot to do with advertising dollars. As well, right? I mean, your big journals like Nature and Science can show that they have a huge readership because they mm. get lots of citations yeah. and they can get yeah advertising dollars.
1: I guess so. Although there's, there's there's a question which I'm never quite sure about, but it sometimes seems to me, and this is someone who has published one paper and has another kind of being drafted, you know, very
0: early, <laughs> very early
1: on, but. Uh, but I wonder what the purpose of, of readership for some of those, um, journals behind the paywall is. Mm-hmm. Because it's primarily being read by other academics in that field
0: mm-hmm. who are
1: probably interested in publishing in that journal so that yeah. other academics in their field can read it and mm-hmm. publish in that journal or, you know, moving up or down or, and, and in that very science specific format. And it's just an interesting kind of closed loop
0: mm-hmm. of a
1: medium, which is, um, I don't quite know what I feel about it yet, but
0: it's interesting to yeah, watch I don't think we're going to fix the publishing industry. No, here no. Today.
1: no, no, no. no, 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 no. <laughs> Just it's it's um it, particularly as someone who came through from English lit, and you know we we now we look at all these writings and things. They could be journals or letters or things like that, and we pick them apart mercilessly in terms of the context and the different ways you can read it, and mm-hmm. kind of historical and kind of author based. Ways of looking at things. Um, but, you know, countless papers are being published every year. Mm -hmm. And these are written works that are, that come from a really interesting context. And it's, it's hard to know what that's going to look like in a hundred years' time. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, you look back at old natural history writing and stuff and it's quite fun.
0: (laughs) It, It is. I really like reading old papers. Yeah. And the, I mean, the emotive language it's mm. just off the charts. You absolutely. Start describing study species as repulsive and voracious. Yeah, and
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's that's not necessarily better. It's just it's what it is. Because mm. I, think, I think the reality is that people who study spiders and insects and other weird things, um, like I don't think you'd do it if you didn't have a sort of aesthetic appreciation mm-hmm. for your study system. Because if I was scared of the dark, you know... <laughs> I couldn't sit in the bush for hours at a time just watching spiders do their thing. Yeah. Um, but we 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 from on a day to day we operate as if that doesn't exist, so we kind of shove it to the side. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's sort of a good point that in our professional capacity, mm. scientists don't really get opportunities to show the just the joy and the passion.
1: Yeah which is i think i think it's possibly why a lot of people do turn to science communication or sci art and things like that it's mm. it's a chance to share that side of things and i also think that one one of the things that i feel about this is kind of with the insect cards and also to an extent when i talk about spiders with people at parties but particularly with environmental problems and ecological collapse and losing species and all this kind of thing is that sharing that aesthetic appreciation and love is, in many ways, just as important as sharing information, Mm
0: -hmm. because there's
1: this kind of Stephen Jay Gould quote, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's something to the effect of, basically, people won't fight to protect what they don't love, Mm -hmm. and you can't love things in abstract. So, basically, kind of with the cards and with telling people stories and... It's stories, not in the form of publications, but you know, stories at parties about this funny time when a spider like escaped in my house, and I didn't tell anyone about it. Cause, <laughs> and then I eventually found it later hiding in a corner. Um, it it kind of peoples the landscape in a way. It mm. creates characters which people find interesting and have an emotional connection to, even if they ultimately still think they're gross. Mm. So I think that kind of thing's really important.
0: Speaking of art and expression. Mm-hmm. One of my other golf finds when I was to you <laughs> was in the Auckland Youth Choir. Yeah. How long have you been doing that for? Long
1: time. I'm stretching the definition of youth. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 to I'm heading towards
0: the upper limit. I'm heading
1: towards the upper limit. Yeah. Is there but an upper limit? <laughs> there is an upper limit, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't say what it is, but, um, but yeah, there is an upper limit. But, yeah, I've been in that there for about eight years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's, what's your range? Yeah. I'm a soprano. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, but high notes scare me, so there's that. But, um, I, I don't know what kind of mental state I'd be in if I didn't have choir every week. Mm-hmm. But in some respects, I also feel like doing m- music has been a really interesting contrast and in some ways not really even a contrast to science. In as much that I think that particularly when you do highly theoretical, really blue sky research, it often feels a lot like you're a musician Hmm. in that there's no money. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And in many ways, your primary output of all your work or rehearsals and things like that is sharing it directly with people Hmm. and sharing experiences and generating experiences or emotional connections with other people. Hmm. So in some respects, it's the same thing. I guess
0: that what people see... When you perform, it has been brought to them by years and hours of hard work and exactly. dedication. Exactly. And you and don't tell them
1: about all the awful rehearsals you had. <laughs> you still <laughs> present your best
0: as if it was all fine. <laughs> <laughs> so if people want to hear more about your stories and your thoughts and that on science, you've got a website.
1: I, I have a blog, yes, mm-hmm. which is just Leilani Walker. It's a wordpress.wordpress.com. mm mm-hmm. um, Although I don't put many thoughts up there all the time because, um, sometimes I feel like my thoughts should stay in my head. Because <laughs> <laughs> not everyone, not everyone, not everyone needs to be up there. Um, but I have many thoughts, yes. And you're on Twitter as well? Yep, um, Lani Pai, that's L-A-N-I-P-A-I, mm-hmm. and I really wish I had, like, known that I was eventually going to use a Twitter handle for my Work. Or else I <laughs> wouldn't have gone with that.
0: It's, it's like, not too late to change. It's like
1: it's like old Hotmail accounts, you know. Yeah. They say, oh, by the way, you need an email address for your CV. You go, I'm going to go get a new email address. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think I've still got my old Hotmail floating around somewhere.
1: I think my one had the word marshmallow in it, I think. It's not appropriate.
0: <laughs> my one was Lonely Lloyd at Hotmail. Lonely Lloyd. Yeah. That's
1: not too bad. Well, you know it is quite bad
0: it's pretty creepy. It's quite creepy. Why was it Lonely Lloyd? There was an old petrol station near my house when I was growing up. This getting more and more creepy. (laughs) It was called Lloyd's Petroleum, and it just had one little old man working in it.
1: Was he called Lloyd?
0: I assume so. (laughs) Lloyd's Petroleum. Okay. And so me and my sister just had this running joke about Lonely Lloyd and his petrol station. (laughs) So when I came to make my first Hotmail address, I thought, Lloyd, that'll be funny.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. No.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I literally just opened the dictionary in two different places and just picked the
0: first word I found. One of is Marshmallow. <laughs> right. You can contact Lindy at Marshmallow. No. Yes. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> no, just go to Twitter. Okay. <laughs> all right we should wrap things up thanks so much for joining me Leilani.
1: thank you for having me
0: no worries thanks for joining us on the podcast you can follow institute science on twitter as well with a handle at institute science you can follow me with a handle at jmo and we have a website at institute science.com thank you once again and we'll see you next time